Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of the Bible Podcast. Today we're going to be covering um, Book of Numbers chapters 21 through 22. And before we get into it, I wanted to start out with a quick prayer. Lord, I pray that you grant us all the royalty of inward happiness and the serenity which comes from living close to you. Daily renew in us the sense of joy and let the eternal spirit of the Father dwell in our souls and bodies, filling every corner of our hearts with light and grace so that bearing about with us the infection of good courage, we may be diffusers of life. And may we meet all ills and cross accidents with high-hearted happiness, giving you thanks always for all things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, chapter 21, Victory Over the Canaanites. The Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that the Israelites were approaching on the road through Atherim. So he attacked the Israelites and took some of them as prisoners. Then the people of Israel made this vow to the Lord. If you will hand these people over to us, we will completely destroy all their towns. The Lord heard the Israelites' request and gave them victory over the Canaanites. The Israelites completely destroyed them and their towns, and the place has been called Hormah ever since. The Bronze Snake When the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Adam, but the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness? They complained. There is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told them, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of a bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Israel's journey to Moab. The Israelites traveled next to Oboth and camped there. Then they went to they went on to Ayibarim in the wilderness of the eastern border of Moab. From there they traveled to the valley of Zered Brook and set up camp. Then they moved out and camped on the far side of the Arnon River in the wilderness adjacent to the territory of the Amorites. The Arnon is the boundary line between the Moabites and Amorites. For the reason the book of the wars of the Lord speak speaks of the town of Waheb in the area of Sufa and the ravines of the Arnon River and the ravines that extend as far as the settlement of Ar on the border of Moab. From there, the Israelites traveled to Beer, which is the well where the Lord said to Moses, Assemble the people and I will give them water. 
There the Israelites sang this song. Spring up, O well, yes, sing its praises. Sing of this well, which princes dug, which great leaders hollowed out with their scepters and stamps. Then the Israelites left the wilderness and proceeded on through Matanah, Nahaliel, and Bamoth, after they went to the valley of Moab, where Pesgah Peak overlooks the wasteland. Victory over Sehon and Og. The Israelites sent ambassadors to King Sehon and the Amorites with this message. Let us travel through your land. We will be careful not to go through your fields and vineyards. We won't even drink your water from the wells. We will stay on the king's road until we have passed through your territory. But King Sehan refused to let them cross this territory. Instead, he mobilized his entire army and attacked Israel in the wilderness, engaging them in battle at Jahaz. But the Israelites slaughtered them with their swords and occupied the land from the Arnon River to the Jabbok River. They went only as far as the Ammonite border because the boundary of the Ammonites was fortified. So Israel captured all the towns of the Amorites and settled in them, including the city of Heshbon and its surrounding villages. Heshbon had been the capital of King Sahan of the Amorites. He had defeated a former Moabite king and seized all of his land as far as the Arnon River. Therefore, the ancient poets wrote his this about him. Come on, Heshbon, and let it be rebuilt. Let the city of Shehan be restored. A fire flamed forth from Heshbon, a blaze from the city of Shehan. It burned the city of Ar and Moab. It destroyed the rulers of the Arnon Heights. What sorrow awaits you, O people of Moab? You are finished, O worshippers of Chemosh. Chemosh has left his sons of refuge, as refugees, his daughters as captives, captives of Sahan, the Amorite king. We have utterly destroyed them from Heshbon to Deban. We have completely wiped them out as far away as Nopha and Medeba. So the people of Israel occupied the territory of the Amorites after Moses sent men to explore the Jazar area. They captured all the towns in the region and drove out the Amorites who lived there. Then they turned and marched up the road of Bashan, but King Og of Bashan and all his people attacked them at Edrei. The Lord said to Moses, Do not be afraid of him, for I have handed him over to you, along with all his people in his land. Do the same to him as you did to King Sahan of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon. And Israel king killed King Og, his sons, and all his subjects, not a single survivor remained. Then Israel occupied their land. Here in chapter one, uh, twenty-one through chapter, uh, sorry, verses one through three, we see victory. This first great success was the result of complete obedience to God's will. This victory, along with others to follow, began an important era in in Israel's history. They were able to see the truth of Joshua and Caleb's advice. Faith and obedience to God would bring victory over any enemy or obstacle. God delights in proving himself in the lives of those who trust in his power to overcome life's obstacles. 
Our lack of power over any problem can be covered by God's unlimited power to act on our behalf. Verses 4 through 9, in the Gospel of John, Jesus referred to this incident as an illustration of what he would do on our behalf. As Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. John 3.14 Evident in both passages in God's saving grace, which provides salvation and healing for anyone who responds in faith. Healing did not come to everyone in Israel, but only to those who, by faith, looked at the bronze serpent on the pole. John's Gospel makes it clear that personal forgiveness and victory over sin can come only to those who look to Christ on the cross. God provides the powerful means of redemption from sin and failure. We need to receive it in faith. In verse 7, notice here that Moses resumed his role as Israel's leader and mediator even after he was judged for his sin at Meribah. His failure undoubtedly brought him a great deal of personal pain and disappointment. He will lead the entire nation of Israelites to the promised land, but would never enter it himself. In spite of this, Moses showed no bitter feelings toward God. Neither did he neglect the responsibilities. His restoration after this personal failure and his continued faithful service are evidence of Moses' great faith and dependence upon God. Our mistakes don't necessarily disqualify us from future success. They provide opportunities for learning, growth, and dependence on God. Chapter 22 Balak sends for Balaam. Then the people of Israel traveled to the plains of Moab and camped east of the Jordan River. Across from Jericho, Balak, son of Zippor, the Moabite king, had seen everything the Israelites did to the Amorites. And when the people of Moab saw how many Israelites there were, they were terrified. The king of Moab said to the elders of Midian, This mob will devour everything in sight, like an ox devours grass in the field. So Balak, king of Moab, sent messengers to call Balaam, son of Beor, who was living in his native land of Pethor, near the Euphrates River. His message said, Look, a vast horde of people has arrived from Egypt. They cover the face of the earth and are threatening me. Please come and curse these people for me, because they are too powerful for me. Then perhaps I will be able to conquer them and drive them from the land. I know that blessings fall on any people who you, bl you bless, and curses fall on people you curse. Balak's messengers, who were elders of Moab and Midian, set out with money to pay Balaam to place a curse upon Israel. They went to Balaam and delivered Balak's message to him. Stay here overnight, Balaam said. In the morning, I will tell you whatever the Lord directs me to say. So the officials from Moab stayed there with Balaam. The night God came to Balaam and asked him, Who are these men visiting you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent me this message. 
Look, a vast horde of people has arrived from Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come and curse these people for me. Then perhaps I'll be able to stand up to them and drive them from the land. But God told Balaam, Do not go with them. You are not to curse these people, for they have been blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up and told Balak's officials, Go on home. The Lord will not let me go with you. So the Moabite officials returned to King Balak and reported, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak tried again. This time he sent a large number of even more distinguished officials than those who had sent the first time. They went to Balaam and delivered this message to him. This is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Please don't let anything stop you from coming to help me. I will pay you very well and do whatever you tell me. Just come and curse these people for me. But Balaam responded to Balak's messengers. Even if Balak were to give me his palace filled with silver and gold, I would be powerless to do anything against the will of the Lord my God. But stay here one more night and I will see if the Lord has anything else to say to me. That night God came to Balaam and told them, since these men have come for you, get up and go with them, but do not, but do only what I tell you to do. Balaam and his donkey. So the next morning, Balaam got up, saddled his donkey, and started off with the Moabite officials. But God was angry that Balaam was going, so he sent the angel of the Lord to stand in the road to block his way. As Balaam and two servants were riding along, Balaam's donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. The donkey bolted off the road into a field, but Balaam beat it and turned it back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood at the place where the road narrowed between two vineyards walls. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it tried to squeeze by and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So Balaam beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved farther down the road and stood in a place too narrow for the donkey to get by at all. This time, when the donkey saw the angel, it laid down under Balaam. In a fit of rage, Balaam beat the animal again with his staff. Then the Lord gave the donkey the ability to speak. What have I done to you that deserves your beating me three times? It asked Balaam. You have made me look like a fool, Balaam shouted. If I had a sword with me, I would kill you. But I am the same donkey you have ridden all your life, the donkey answered. Have I ever done anything like this before? No, Balaam admitted. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the roadway with the drawn sword in his hand. Balaam bowed his head and fell face down on the ground before him. Why did you beat your donkey those three times? The angel of the Lord demanded, Look, I have come to block your way because you are stubbornly resisting me. Three times the donkey saw me and sheed away. Otherwise, I would certainly have killed you by now and spared the donkey. Then Balaam confessed to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I didn't realize you were standing in the road to block my way. I will return home if you are against my going. But the angel of the Lord told Balaam, Go with these men, but say only what I tell you to say. So Balaam went on 
with Balak's officials. When King Balak heard that Balaam was on the way, he went out to meet him at the Moabite town on the Arnon River, at the farthest border of his land. Didn't I send you an urgent invitation? Why didn't you come right away? Balak asked Balaam. Didn't you believe me when I said I would reward you richly? Balaam replied, Look, now I have come, but I have no power to say whatever I want. I will speak only the message that God puts in my mouth. Then Balaam accompanied Balak to Kiriath Huzoth, where the king sacrificed cattle and sheep. He sent portions of the meat to Balaam and the officials who were with him. The next morning, Balak took Balaam up to Bamath Baal. From there, he could see some of the people of Israel spread out below him. So chapter 22, uh, verses 1 through 20. Balaam was a Mesopotamian Baru who was hired by Balak, king of Moab, to place a curse upon Israel. King Balak wanted to prevent the Israelites from conquering Moab and other surrounding lands. Balaam, a man of great spiritual stature, openly admitted that he had no power to go beyond the will of God. He could not place a curse upon the people whom God desired to bless. This should help us realize that when it seems everyone is against us, we can be sure that God is able to protect us and provide us with the wisdom to survive the toughest of situations. In verses 21 through 35, the humorous story of, uh, about Balaam and his donkey illustrates Balaam's spiritual blindness with respect to the true God. As a specialist in divination, Balaam often relied upon signs from animals and nature to determine the future. In this situation, however, he had less spiritual perception than his donkey, and he was prevented from carrying out a diabolical plot against Israel. From Balaam, we learn that the greatest of human wisdom can often lead to spiritual blindness. True wisdom to face life situations comes only from the sovereign, all-knowing God. So today, the Israelites are closing in on the promised land, carefully routing around Adam. Since the king denied them passage, unfortunately they run into another king who pounces on them and takes captives. Going on the defense, Israel asks God for help and promises to destroy the pagan Canaanite cities if God helps them win, and he does. Then they hit another food and water shortage. Instead of asking God to help like they know he can, they complain about Moses and God. They don't complain to Moses, just about him. They take their problems to everyone except the people who can solve them. Even though they're not talking to God, he hears. He sends snakes to kill them, continuing with his plan to wipe out the older generation. When they confess and repent, Moses prays for them and God shows mercy. God tells Moses to make a fiery serpent and put it on a pole. And if anyone is bitten, they can look at the serpent and live. 
This seems like God is ordering Moses to break the second commandment, doesn't it? How is crafting a serpent any different from crafting a calf? The distinction is that they aren't worshiping the serpent. It's a sign of God's provision and rescue, pointing back to him. Eventually we see that it does become an idol for the people. They begin to worship it and make offerings to it, and it has to be destroyed in 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4. In the second commandment, the quote-unquote creating an image part doesn't seem to be the issue so much as the bowing down to it. The commandment is about the heart toward the item, whether it takes their eyes off God. Next, Israel needs to pass through the lands of the Amorites and of Bashan, but their kings refused an attack. The Israelites fight back and God gives them victory and a lot of land. Word of their victory spreads and the Moabites get nervous. The Amorites recently beat them in a war, so if someone can beat the Amorites, that's terrifying. King Balak of Moab gets an idea. He'll hire a guy named Balaam to cast a spell on them. He fears their power, and his fear prompts control. And then when his efforts are thwarted, he leans into manipulation. Balak sends more people to Balaam. It's unclear if Balaam is a prophet diviner, pagan, worshiper of Yahweh, or some combo. He's not an Israelite, but he could be a believing foreigner, like some of the sojourners who live among the Israelites, because he he refers to Yahweh as my God. Regardless, God says, nope, you're not cursing the Israelites because I bless them. So Balaam turns them down. When they come back again, God gives Balaam permission to go, but reminds him to obey. Then God gets angry when he goes. Why? He just said he could go. Balaam's heart seems to be set on money more than obedience. And of course, only God would know for sure. It seems he's angry not because of his actions, but because of his motive. Balaam sets out on his journey. Then the angel of the Lord shows up, likely Jesus, but he's only visible to Balaam's donkey. God has power over what what we see. He can hide and reveal things at will. When God opens Balaam's eyes so he can see the angel too, he falls down, repents, and offers to turn back if it's evil in God's eyes. God's anger seems to be about Balaam's heart, not his actions. If Balaam had continued on his trip with money as his motive, it's possible the offer of more money would would have swayed him and led him to curse Israel instead of bless him like God commanded. This is all part of God's plan. He doesn't change the course of the journey. Balaam just needs rebuking along the way. He needs his heart to be aligned with God's mission. The serpent on the pole points us to something greater. It's symbolic of the way both Eden's serpent and Christ's cross affect us. It summarizes the fall and redemption, foreshadowing future redemption through Christ. 
Jesus references this in John chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That fiery serpent on a pole can only save people from physical death, offering temporary rescue. But Jesus saves us from spiritual death, giving eternal rescue. He's where the joy is. And that concludes today. I just want to leave you all off once again with a daily devotional to take with you today. Excuse me. Your longing for heaven is good because it is an extension of your yearning for me. The hope of heaven is meant to strengthen and encourage you, filling you with wondrous joy. Many Christians have misunderstood this word, hope, believing that it denotes wishful thinking. Nothing could be farther from the truth. As soon as I become your savior, heaven became your ultimate destination. The phrase hope of heaven highlights the benefits you can enjoy even while remaining on earth. This hope keeps you spiritually alive during dark times of adversity. It brightens your path and heightens your awareness of my presence. My desire is that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all for tuning into this episode. I hope you all enjoyed it. Hope you all have a great day and God bless each and every one of you.